0: Happy holidays. This is Rick Such from Inside Music Cast. Before we get started with this week's Inside Music Cast, Eddie and I wanted to let you know that the Inside Music Cast website has been updated. Now, when you visit the site, you can post your comments in each of our guests' blog, which will automatically enter you for a chance to win an Apple iPod, complete with David Pack's latest release, "The Secret of Moving On." And mark your calendars for December 22nd for the Inside Music Cast Christmas Special, featuring highlights from the past year, as well as conversations with some very special guests. We'll also be joined by David Pack, who will announce the winner of the Apple iPod. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast, and don't forget to check out our new and improved website at InsideMusicCast.com. That's InsideMusicCast.com with only one C. Taking you inside the world of music, this is Inside Music Cast with Rick Such and Eddie Cabello. On this episode, Inside Music Cast welcomes David Garfield. Welcome to Inside Music Cast, a podcast devoted to musicians, fans, and the people that make music happen. I'm Rick Such. And I'm
1: Eddie Cabello. Welcome everybody from around the world, and as Rick mentioned, Inside Music Cast is devoted to bringing you candid interviews, news, and information with the musicians, fans, and people
0: that make music happen. That's right. This is the podcast that goes beyond the pop star and features the talent behind the talent. So if you're ready, let's get started. Today's guest is one of the most talented and diverse musicians you'll find on the LA music scene. He's a musician, composer, a musical director, and has been the creative force behind many internationally acclaimed recordings. His discography reads like a who's who in the world of music. His mission statement, albeit a simple and accurate one, is, I make music. What he left out is the fact that he makes great music. Inside Music Cast welcomes David Garfield. David, thanks for joining us.
2: Hey, it's my pleasure.
0: I want to go back to the mission statement. You're one of the few musicians that I know of that actually has a mission statement, which, like I said, is I make music. And that seems simple enough because we know that's what you do, but can you tell us a little about how and why you've incorporated this mission statement, or am I just overlooking the obvious?
2: No, I'm glad you asked that question. Um, I became aware of the idea of having a mission statement, and after all these years of doing music and, um, you know, in various different ways, I became aware of you know the concept of a mission statement, and I I wrote up a whole big one, which is something like uh, my purpose or my main mission is to write, record, and perform music uh, with other people for the enjoyment of other people, you know, uh, in the band and the audience, something like that, you know, and and I simplified it down to those, the simplest version of it is, you know, I make music. But you see, I like to write it, and I like to record it, and I like to perform it. And it's also, it's very much about not just having a good time with the other musicians and having a good time in the band, but it's a good time for all the people that come to listen to it as well.
0: Well, you know, like in any business, having a mission statement is is critical. I, I have a business, I own a recording studio, and we have our mission statement, and we stick to it. You know, we have to remind ourselves about it every now and then. About what our objective is with the business, but I think it's important, and why not a musician having one?
2: yeah, well you know it became very obvious to me that because because writing, performing, and recording are all very different aspects of the business, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of people that stick in one area there's some people that just write, some people that just perform, uh, and some people that just record and so like live performance and recording are very different you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I started out in live performance, and then I, I was in L.A. back in the, uh, the late 70s where there was a huge recording scene going on out here. And a lot of the great musicians were, were drifting into this recording as a career opportunity because it was a good working conditions, and it, and it was also very good uh, pay and things like that. So a lot of the young, talented musicians Aspired to do recording work as a career, as opposed to becoming performers. Mm-hmm. And then, what happened was, I stayed more into performing, but I always did a lot of recording. So I kind of had one foot in both worlds. And I, I, started. A lot of the guys who were just recording guys used to like to come out and play, and perform with me, like um, some of the studio musicians that you know you've probably seen on some of my records, mm-hmm. like Jeff Picaro and yeah. uh, Carlos Vega, people like that
0: which we well, we'll be talking about those guys later. I've got some questions about them.
2: They were primarily in the studio mm-hmm. but but coming out and playing live was a big thrill so mm-hmm. yeah those those there's many aspects to making music, but the thing that, that I emphasize is it's really about spreading some kind of good energy and joy to people that's what that's what you get when you go to a good gig, isn't it
1: and it, definitely. <laughs> yeah, David, I've got a question for you. Do you feel that if there were more musicians and more composers and uh, more, um, you know, more talent out there, that would you know, to look at this more as a, as a, as a business, uh, you know, as to, you know, aligning what they really do and focus down into it. Do you think that has, you know, this is a hypothetical question. Would that give them more longevity in, in their career? Does it focus you any more than if you didn't, you know, that one afternoon list all those things that you wanted to do and, and hone it down to I make music because it sounds very simple, but it's rare, also very focused. Does that have anything to do with longevity of your career?
2: I think it does. I mean, I think the one obstacle that we're all uh, running up against, especially nowadays, is the, the actual business side of the music
3: business. Mm-hmm. You
2: know, because I wish that we could get some of the business people to focus on I make music rather than I make money. You know, mm-hmm. because the focus, you know, I have this theory that originally people started making music because they, they did it naturally and they liked it. And then people liked music, and then eventually it became a situation where it became lucrative. There was a business that went along with it. And then slowly over the years, the business thing has has really grown to the point where they want to control the music. You know, it's kind of gotten backwards,
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, if you know what I'm saying, because a lot of the people in the music business are not thinking about, well, I want to spread and promote good music. Mm-hmm. They're, they don't need... They don't even care about that. No,
0: music is a commodity to them.
2: Yeah, and then they're looking, they're just looking for how can we make money, and I think it's really hurt the business. I mean, I remember I grew up in the 60s, and I remember when groups came on the scene, like in the rock era, like like Cream and Led Zeppelin. and Jimi Hendrix, and they, Janis Joplin, and those groups, the Doors, were all being creative, Mm -hmm. and they were all, none of them were commercial in any way. What happened was a lot of people caught on and really liked it, and then there became this large audience that that equaled a profit or equaled some kind of monetary side to the whole thing. And they weren't doing it because of that. They weren't doing it to do that. But so what happened was as more and more people caught on to the music, the sales got more and more, concert sales got more and more, and there became this monetary aspect to it. And so unfortunately... I don't see so much creative new music out there, you know, people really trying to promote it. I don't see a lot of it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. some, but I don't see a whole lot of it, you know.
0: You know, obviously a lot of musicians are, I think are catching on to the fact that labels and and a lot of the big music promoters are are doing just that. They're only giving you 10% of what you're worth or or less sometimes. And I think, you know, with the internet, there's been some really creative and, and, and valuable ways for musicians to start sharing their music. But I think people are with the internet are trying to find ways to creatively make music and, and get it out there um, on their own. But it's difficult. I know it's difficult.
2: Yeah, well, it is happening, and, and uh, there are some people out there. Um, one person that I've heard about that is uh, Ani DeFranco. She's mm-hmm. started her own label and become very done her own music and become very big. And then the, the big companies came to her, and she said she wasn't interested. She's just very comfortable with what she's doing. Right. Um, what's happened with me is that the music that I started doing um, when I really started my groups back in the mid 70s was mm-hmm. I was doing, my, my goal was to do like jazz and rock and funk, Latin music all mixed up. Yeah. Um, I had no interest in trying to recreate what the jazz greats had done in the 50s and 60s. They already did it, you know, Plonius Monk, Miles Davis, John Coltrane. Mm-hmm. So I was trying to go to another. Uh, just a new level, and uh, at the time I was doing my stuff right around that time, uh Jeff Lorber came out Yeah. same time he put out his first record, and I remember hearing it on the radio and um during that time, and another friend of mine, the Yellow Jackets, they came out mm-hmm. uh, with their first record, and there was like kind of like a small movement of musicians who were doing you know contemporary jazz with rock and funk. Uh, influences, but what happened was over the years, what I saw happen was uh, the jazz scene kind of polarized, and you had people that just stayed with traditional jazz like the Marcelluses and people like that mm-hmm. kind of went, and a lot of the stations went with traditional jazz, then you had the smooth jazz thing come out yeah. which was kind of a watering down a little bit of the, um, of the progressive jazz fusion that I was talking about, so you ended up with there's people in the middle like myself or the Yellow Jackets that basically were in the middle. They weren't in a format, you know. <laughs> and we kind of got left out. And um, I admire the Yellow Jackets. They've stayed together for a long time. and yeah. They, yeah. they make good music and um, they, you know, they have their market and they travel and make their records. And I think they have their own label now, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. I think they're doing it themselves. But um, what happened for me was I had this whole label of of music I did, by that time I had done about, I don't know, 10, 11, 12 CDs. Um, and I started looking for an American label to to put it out, you know, try to take it to the next level. And what I found out was that I had kind of created my own little sound and my own little need. So by kind of, by default, I ended up having to make my own label uh, just because it had its own identity. It didn't fit with anybody else's. You know. hmm so that's kind of how I ended up launching Creechy Records, which was like in, in 1995. I put out, they actually released, manufactured my first title mm-hmm. for, and started getting into the, the whole side of distributing them to the public, you know, which is something I never dealt with before.
0: Great. I'm glad you mentioned the name Creechy because I wanted to ask you where that came from.
2: Creechy, everybody asked me that. Creechy is short <laughs> for creature. Okay. And when I was young and I came out here and I uh, had a lot of hair and, you know, a big beard and, you know, young and wiry and uh, somewhat wild, and I kind of got the nickname, The Creature. <laughs> so eventually, over the years, it got softened down to Creechy and some people called me Creech. And so when I started my company, I decided to call it Creechy Productions. That was, boy, that was in 83, 1983, I started, mm-hmm. and... Um, you know, I wanted to start a actual production company because I was doing musical projects for different people, you know, producing music and arranging music. And uh, so Creechie uh, has stuck around all these years.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And that's my website, too, com. That's right. right. C-R-E-A-P-C-H-Y.
1: Let's let's go back a little earlier. Could you tell me about the earlier, uh, younger David Garfield? I mean, where, when did you first start playing? I mean, talk about. Uh, I'm a keyboard player. I, you know, I've I learned when I was a kid and so forth, and through the years. But tell me a little bit of about where David Garfield really started. Where where are you from, and when did you first start uh, dabbling in uh, the interest of music?
2: Well, I started piano lessons when I was little, mm-hmm. and we were living you know, in St. Louis, Missouri, and then we moved to New York. New York area, actually, a suburb of New York, and I took up the drums in the school band because they didn't have piano. The drums were my second instrument, and then as I got a little older, I got more interested in the drums with the rock and roll and and dance music, and I kind Mm -hmm. of let go of the piano and really pursued drums for years. When we moved back to St. Louis, Missouri in 1970, and I was going to high school there, and at that time there was a lot of jazz rock bands. There was a new kind of phenomenon, Blood, Sweat, and Tears in Chicago Mm -hmm. and groups like that, and there was this blending of jazz and rock, and um, and around that time I got into the high school stage band, and I was still playing drums, and uh, started going around the clubs in St. Louis where I was living, and that's not that far from where you guys are, Mm -hmm. and I'm sure you have a similar kind of uh, scene there, and there were small clubs, Mm -hmm. there were musicians that had uh, come from the bebop and the jazz era, some great musicians. And I started to meet those guys and hang out with them. And I got interested in, more in the piano when I was getting back into interested in jazz, because the, the harmonies and really lent themselves to the melodies, to piano. So around that time, I kind of started playing more and more piano, and then I, I had opportunities to start working with bands when I was 17, and uh I started working as a keyboard player, and it just really clicked, so I decided to let go of the drums hmm. and just uh I bought a fender rose and uh, i was working i started working the next day and uh, that's been the, the whole journey. I never did go to college I just learned from the from the musicians and from playing
1: yeah, so you learn basically with hey the charts and you know start playing, and never really attended a formal school for the keyboard just picked I had a knack for it huh.
2: Yeah, I was oh. I was uh, coming from playing by ear and, mm-hmm. and playing from my heart, and I never was a you know a overly technical oriented player, and, and I learned from the guys that had played with Miles Davis and uh, Clark Terry, a lot of the great St. Louis jazz musicians. So I had this great jazz schooling. Plus, we had great rhythm R and B bands, rhythm and blues bands in St. Louis, and bands with horns. And of course, Ike and Tina had come out of there, and. Yeah people like that, and so um, even David Sanborn was was a little ahead of me. He had come out of St. Louis Mm -hmm. and a a couple members of the Butterfield Blues Band. So I just uh, decided to move out to California because it seemed like all the great guys were moving out here at the time, Herbie Hancock and Chick Corea, Weather Report, and they were all coming out this way, so I moved out here in 74.
0: You know, I've listened to a lot of your work going back to the early Charisma recordings to the Los Lobotomies, right up to the... Your recently released Seasons of Change, and you've incorporated such a, a wide variety of musical styles into your compositions. Is there a certain style that you enjoy more than others?
2: Well, not really. Um, I've always had this philosophy that there's, there's just 12 notes and there's four beats to the bar, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. it's like, um, just make it mean, happen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just, to me, it's all about melodies and and forms and rhythms, and that's why um Early on, I got interested in, in African rhythms and Caribbean rhythms. And, um, you know, it's just, to me, I like to have a, a diversity in the music. Like when I do a show, um, I, I like to have a, a moment where it goes more into the Latin vibe and another moment where it goes more into the rock vibe. Mm-hmm, sure. I, don't, I don't really like to just do one style over and over and over.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that's really apparent with Charisma, though, because that's that's a band that blends many different styles of music. You know, it's really the kind of diversity you don't find in a single group these days. You know, there have been over a a dozen incarnations of Charisma since the band was formed back in 75, so I guess it's not all that unfathomable to understand how Charisma has been diversified over the years. And uh, you're still together, obviously. It's been 30 years going strong. And who is Charisma today?
2: Wow. That's such a great question. You know, we did... um a trip to Japan last year, which was our 30th year, and um, I ended up taking um, the core of the band, which was Lenny Castro, Larry Clemas, uh Jimmy Johnson, myself, mm-hmm. but um, both Michael Landau and Vinny Calyuta were, weren't able to make the trip, so I found um, a couple new guys to come play with us, mm-hmm. a drummer named Oscar Seton, who's mm-hmm. a really hot new drummer in town, and a guitar player that we've worked with for years, James Harris. So we had a couple new guys in the band, which was really nice. They had some great new energy. But um, I'm currently working on a, a new studio album. Oh, great. And what we're doing on this album is we're kind of getting together some of the older members along with some of the newer members. So the, the record's going to feature, you know, Vinnie Caluda and um, Lenny Castro and Larry Pymus mm-hmm. and myself. Jimmy Johnson, but also have some tracks on it by this, this new drummer, Oscar Seton, mm-hmm. and um, James Hara, and original bass player Dean Cortez is in on some things. What we're basically planning is to record a few of the songs that never got recorded from the 70s that were really uh, special material that. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, and, so, and then we're also writing new stuff. So it's kind of going to be like a, a somewhat of a reunion album, I guess pulling a lot of the different members
0: together. Well, you, you took my next question away from me, and that was basically, since there's been so many people, so many incarnations of the band, I wondered if there was an open door for past members to join, but it sounds like it's just an open family. Uh, is just a big family.
2: It is, it is. And, in fact, you know, it's funny because the band really gelled back in the late 70s. It really gelled with Carlos Vega, Lenny Castro, and Dean Cortez, mm-hmm. all of them being to, you know, uh, from Latin influence, Cuban and Puerto Rican. Mm-hmm. Those three guys with Michael Landau, Larry Klimas, and myself—that was that was really one of the strongest versions of the band that was going on for a while. We just uh, some of the tunes from that band are on the Lost and Found uh, CD. Mm-hmm. The first three tunes. That band really had a magic. Warner Brothers was going to sign us in '79, and then what happened with Carlos. Uh, went off to do a lot more stuff, and we replaced him with Vinny. Vinny was new and unknown. We kind of discovered him, and he, of course, you know, he's gone on to become such a uh, wonderful, yeah. world-recognized talent. Oh, yeah. But we, you know, we, we replaced Carlos with Vinny, and then after that, eventually we started changing up some other of the positions, and then later we kind of ended up with um, a version of the band with Jimmy Johnson on, on the bass, and uh, and he also was just a, brings a lot to the band. And he's such a creative player, and he's got a special magic about what he brings, so Jimmy has been one of our favorite bass players, but as you know, as the years went on, we had an opportunity to go over to, to Europe, and um, that particular tour, they brought Neil Steubenhouse, so... And he had also played in the band over the years, off and on. So it yeah. is kind of a big family.
1: What is Neil doing these days? Have you kept in touch with him?
2: Yeah, I see him fairly regularly. He He's a big part of the Yamaha group. I mm-hmm. have this concert every year where they have all the Yamaha drummers. And I uh, saw Neil down there uh, just you know a few months ago.
0: i got to tell you, I, I uh, read on your website that the... Shows in Japan went over really well and uh, had a great crowd, and you said people were flying from all over to come to see those shows. And I guess my question for you is, is well, actually I wanted to tell you I'm jealous, and um, <laughs> I, I want Charisma to play somewhere in the States so I can fly to see play. Any chance of that?
2: Sure. Um, I'm going to try to see if I can get some of the guys together for, uh, for the December, for the Carlos Vega concert that we do in December. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that might
0: happen. Very cool. Hey, one of my favorite groups that you've been a part of is Los Lobotomies. And I remember the first time I laid ears on the first Los Lobotomies release, I was just blown away. And I I tell people this all the time when I talk about Los Lobotomies. I I left Smell Yourself on repeat in my car for about a month. Every time I got in the car, it was just Smell Yourself over and over. But I just couldn't get sick of it. I just absolutely loved it, and I still love it. And um, now Los Lobotomies was the brainchild of – Lenny Castro and yourself, correct?
2: Yeah, well, you know, it's funny how that whole band took off. It's, it's really funny looking back on all this stuff. At the time, once again, I was playing at the Big Potato, and it, we were playing as David Garfield and friends, mm-hmm. And that's what the, the band was. I was the organizer and the leader. I had the tunes. Mm-hmm. And and both Jeff Beccaro and Steve Lucas were playing with us a lot because, like I told you, they, they had a chance to come out and play live, and kind of facilitated that. So they were, they were in the band, and, and, and there was this chemistry that kind of formed. So it's just like we, we, it turned into a band, you know, because of the people that were playing there. And so one day Lenny said, you know, he said, let's, uh, he goes, I got a name for the group, Los Lobotomies. It was perfect name at the time. And um, so, you know, basically it just grew out of, of our gig, See, what happens is, whenever I put together a group, if we play more than once, we start to develop some kind of a chemistry. So, mm-hmm. unfortunately, in L.A., everybody's always doing different gigs, so it's so hard to keep the same mm-hmm.
3: group. Right, right.
2: You get a really great group together, and then you try to book another gig, and then one guy can't make it, or another guy can't make it. So,
0: And there goes your chemistry.
2: Yeah, so the, the low subotomy was something that Lenny and I basically shepherded, you know,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, I think on the on the first album that you released, um, you had about a dozen guys in the band at that point, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah, well, we brought in the band. At the time, the core band was Jeff Beccaro, Lenny Castro, and they, those guys played so well together. They mm-hmm. go way back to oh, yeah. pre-Toto when they were with Boskay. Mm-hmm. Those two guys with Nathan East on bass, Brandon Fields, and myself and Steve Lukather, that was the band. And when we came time to do our first record, Nathan was completely unavailable. He had joined Eric Clapton's band, and he was over in, in London doing all these sessions and recording. And, you know, he was just real busy. And we, we were pressed to find a bass player that would really fit the bill. And uh, then Abraham Laborio was going to do the record,
1: because
2: mm-hmm. Abraham would have been great in that band. And then two weeks before the record, or a month before the record, Abraham called up and said he had a conflict. Jeez. So we were really scratching our heads, and we just needed the right bass player. So I, I started putting my thinking cap on, and I thought, what about if we could get Will Lee to come out from
3: the York? Oh,
0: yeah, yeah. He's
2: a wonderful bass player. His energy was just right. And it turns out he was the bass player that was originally asked to be in Toto. That's right. Which I didn't even know that
0: I had heard that somewhere, but I never knew. If, I never had confirmed that.
2: Oh yeah, no, that's definitely the truth. And they had asked him to come out and join Toto in the beginning. Mm-hmm. But um, at any rate, so we we called Will and we were able to bring him out. It just worked out perfectly. He had like a break from the Letterman show, and then um, the chemistry with him and Jeff was just awesome.
0: Hey, he's he's still doing the Letterman show, isn't he? Yes, he yeah. still is. Yeah. <laughs> <And,
2: laughs> has been doing that forever and so what, what it is is um, we did the record but we brought in both Vinny and Carlos you know to augment Jeff on the record because mm-hmm. they were both the guys that would sub for Jeff when Jeff couldn't make it you
0: know? well you know speaking of Jeff you know I've, I've listened to Jeff's work for many years you know prior to Los Lobotomies and this was the this album was the first time that I, I really experienced Jeff just letting loose I mean we all knew he had an incredible group but this was like grooving beyond you know yeah oh yeah it was just incredible. It, what's the current status of, of the band? I mean, I understand you have Chad Wackerman on drums now.
2: The last, yeah, the last tour we did um, went back to some of the original music, and we brought Brandon back and Lenny and myself, mm-hmm. and then Chad took the place on drums. And um, the uh, the thing right now is we're planning a new Los Lobotomes record, and we're going to go a kind of a different direction this time is because Over the years, you know, we've done so much with Steve Lukather, we've decided this time to do a record with all different guitar players. Like, Mm -hmm. we're going to do kind of like a... Every song is going to have a a very featured guest guitar player. Mm -hmm. Okay, It's kind of gone a different direction. Um, We did a period of the band where it became very, very much dominated by Luke, and um, when we did the second record, The Candyman, and we've gotten to writing a lot of material with Steve and he was singing and we he brought Simon Phillips in and then he cut down the band and eliminated the sax and eliminated the percussion. Mm-hmm. And see, for me, the, the sax almost gave it the jazz thing and the percussion always gave it the Latin thing and the right. guitar almost gave it the rock thing.
3: So mm-hmm.
2: it got a little bit very focused, more of a rock fusion kind of a group for those few years. And then, Steve has kind of moved on with some different projects of his own, so it seemed like the natural thing to do to bring in some different guitar players. So we, we've got a really special record
0: plan for
2: Los Lobotomies now, which is it's going to be really off the charts when we get it done. Um, we're kind of writing music for it now, but mm-hmm. we plan to have... It's kind of going to be like a who's who of guitar players.
1: That's great. Are oh, you planning that to... Uh maybe couple of 8, that is the recording, towards the end of the year? Or what uh, what kind of time frame are you guys on?
2: Well, the way it's working, I think it's probably going to take even longer because we're, we're I'm a little bit more into the Charisma Project now. Mm-hmm. And um, um, so for the Los mix we're still in the writing stages. But we've got the concept and we're writing. And so once we get the material, then we'll start recording.
0: Yeah. I want to switch gears and, and I wanted to talk to you about um, the tribute album that you put together for Jeff Picaro back in 97. And you know that has to be one of the most elaborate tribute albums ever. You know, and miraculously, you gathered eighty or so top-flight musicians to perform in this tribute uh, to the late Toto drummer, such as and I'm going to list a few people like Don Henley and Michael McDonald, Richard Marks, Bill Champlin, David Pack, Vinnie Colaiuta, Steve Cadden, Eddie Van Halen, and all the Toto guys, and the list goes on. This must have been a, a full-time gig in itself, just coordinating such an effort. <laughs> I mean, how long did this project take to create from start to finish?
2: Wow. Well, there was there was a lot of meetings and planning going on for a while before we started. But once I started recording, I think I did the first session in April of ninety six, mm-hmm. and I think we finally finished mixing maybe in in August or September, and you know finished it up uh, by October. I I just yeah I did work on it pretty much full time uh, and. Uh, organized, we thought the best way to do a tribute to Jeff would be to have, uh, be about the drummers, you know, and the the different tunes and grooves, and so kind of picked out a kind of list of, wish list of drummers, and started talking to them, and Mm -hmm. planning the logistics. Yeah, that was really a thrill, what a thrill to have done that project.
0: Well, you know, Jeff was loved and respected by so many, you know, inside and outside the business, and I would imagine that the recording sessions, you know, these gathering of friends and colleagues, must have been like a, a big family reunion of sorts.
2: It was. It, it absolutely was. There were some amazing, just amazing uh, moments of storytelling and hanging, and it was really something else. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: you've recently re-released uh, this tribute to Jeff CD. What's what's different about this release, and why did you decide to re-release it?
2: Well, you know. What happens is when you make records, they're almost like little they're children. They you know they, they have a life of their own. You put them out, mm-hmm. there's a lot of buzz when you first put it out, and then a few years go by, and then they kind of get forgotten. And um, the the tribute CD did most of its activity you know in 19, 1997, 98, and then um, what happened was the, the release on it in the states expired, so I was going to re-release it, and I said, well. Because you want the records to be available to people that come along that weren't familiar with it before, you know. Right. I mean, look at a record like Kind of Blue, Miles Davis. That was done in the, you know, back in the early '60s, and it's still available. People Mm -hmm. are still getting turned on to it. So, once these records are out for a while, they they still have to be maintained. And I decided when I put it back out, rather than just keep it exactly the same, there was a couple of things we wanted to change. Kind of um, refresh it. And one of the things was that when I did the Tribute to Jeff record, the Let's Stay Together became popular on the radio. So I was doing the shows. I needed a uh, vocalist to sing the song. And I found Alice Lidgerwood, who's become like a very close partner of mine, vocalist from Santana and Brian Auger mm-hmm. and Average White Band. And so Alex started singing with us, and we started working out vocal versions of some of the songs on the record that were done instrumentally, like Lowdown and Babylon Sisters. Those songs were done instrumentally on the record. Well, we started having this live show where the vocals on those songs really added to it. So I decided when I redid the record to add the vocals to those versions. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it was really nice because what it does is kind of reflects what we do in our shows. But the other thing was we could add more songs to the record because when we did it back then, you could only have seventy seventy four
0: 74 minutes?
2: Yeah, exactly. Right. So we added a couple more things to it. And um, also, one other thing was the great guitar player from Steely Dan Denny Diaz. Oh, yeah. His guitar solo got mixed out on the first record, and so when we put out the second version, I put his guitar solo in. Oh, very cool, very cool. Yeah, that was, and, you know, that was just something we wanted to do.
1: I've sort of I followed Carlos uh, Vega throughout his whole career, even from the the early um, Dave Grusin days. Yeah, Mountain Dance and working with Larry Williams and Abel Boreal and and Dave Valentine. You know that was a that was an awesome project back then, and I, I know that you had. You know, a lot of time to know this guy, but tell us a little bit about the heart of Carlos. You've got the birthday party thing going on, and that's that's incredible tribute, but tell us a little bit about your working relationship with Carlos. How how, how was that a little bit? Just explain shortly, could you?
2: Sure. Well, Carlos was really my best friend and uh, tremendous influence on me
1: mm-hmm.
2: in my whole musical life, and when I, uh, I met Carlos, we were both 17, he was in his high school stage band, and I just thought he was a great drummer. He had just an incredible amount of taste, great, just a great groove, and he had great chops as well and ideas. And, um, you know, we pursued uh, our careers together, and I watched him and followed him and saw how he, he dealt with the music business. And Carlos, he had a real passion for drumming. He had passion for music. You know, he, he loved music. He had a, a big, diverse... A collection of music, and he could play a variety of styles. He could play any kind of music, but he was mostly known and loved in the studios for having great taste. He was incredibly tasty. Mm-hmm. He knew what not to play, yeah. you know. And he was, crafted his drum parts very skillfully. You know, he started playing on a lot of hit records even before the and stuff. He was played on a lot of Olivia Newton-John. Hits. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you knew that he was. Just, he played on those songs like Physical and
3: Really, oh, really?
2: Magic. Yeah, and he <laughs> played on oh stuff like Maniac and Laura Branigan. He was just during those times when they were doing a lot of recordings out here. He was very much in demand to come into the studio because of his great skill and great ears, great timing, and most of all taste. You know, great taste.
1: Yeah, there was a sort of elegance to his his uh, his playing.
2: Yeah. Very much so. A very, very sophisticated hey. and very underrated, but, you know, just a wonderful guy with a great heart and um, great passion for music.
0: Now, each year, I think it's in December, you have a, a tribute concert
2: that you, yeah, that you hold up. Yeah, we a birthday, memorial birthday concert for him in December.
0: Yeah, and, and you're planning it again this year, I'm assuming, right?
2: Yeah, this year I think it's December. You can look up the date i got it on the website. We've got a date set aside already. It's really a fun hang. That's also a chance for a lot of guys to get together and play. Because, you know, nowadays with the Internet and with the technology, it's like hardly anybody ever gets together and plays at the same time. Yeah. (laughs) Everybody's usually just um, playing by themselves. go to the studio by themselves. Right. And in the back in the days, we we go there to all see a group of guys. So we really miss that. We really miss that camaraderie.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of the players, the the lineup for that tribute concert uh, changes each year. And and uh, are you who are you expecting at this year's tribute? And and uh, where's the show being held this year?
2: It's at MI, the Musicians Institute in Hollywood. Okay. And um, let me see if I can find the, uh, the date here. It's on our website, um,
0: which is Creasy dot com. It's
2: going to be. Saturday, December
0: 9th. Okay. I may have to fly to L.A. for that one. Okay. Well, <laughs> I'll, I'll
2: definitely keep you posted. And well, it's we'll well, not
0: unlike me. Eddie and I, we travel over the place to see great shows, so uh, you <laughs> might see us there.
1: Okay. Hey listen, I've I've got a couple questions here. We're almost finished with the interview here. But um let for the musos out there for the for the keyboard guys, tell us a little bit about uh your your normal setup uh David. Get, tell us about uh what, what have you how has your setup sort of evolved from let's say the old DX seven Fender Rhodes days, emulators or whatever you played um uh, uh, as to what what your setup is right now. Explain briefly about, about that.
2: I started out with Fender Rhodes is my main instrument. And I remember when the DX7s came out at the time I didn't I didn't really care to to get involved, but I remember getting some phone calls for sessions and then and then I got hired for a session and they say, "Well, can, you do have a DX7, right?" And I said, "No, I don't." <laughs> the guy goes, "Oh, well, we're going to call somebody else." So,
1: jeez. <laughs>
2: yeah, um it's amazing um with all the changes the keyboards have gone through over the years. It's just quite amazing, but Right now, I'm really I really like the uh, the Yamaha motif and mm-hmm. the S90. Those are the two keyboards I'm using a lot. Right. They just uh, they've got for me they've got a nice variety of all the classic sounds. You know.
0: Yeah. One thing I we're asking people in our interviews here is uh, you know well for you we know you make music but what does David Garfield like to listen to when not making music? What's on your iPod? Or do you have oh,
2: an iPod? Oh gosh. <laughs> what do I listen to? I'm going to walk over to my CD record. And <laughs> I just, I, I like so much different stuff. Right now, believe it or not, one of my favorite records is David Gilmore. He's got a new record out. Um, you, are you familiar with him?
0: Oh, yeah. From Pink yeah. Floyd.
2: Yeah, he's got a great a great CD out. It's kind of a, a good example of what I like about music. It's called On an Island and I also got recently. These are some things I just got. The New Orleans Social Club. That's awesome. That's really. Dr. John and oh really Neville. Yeah, it's the thing they did for Katrina. Okay. It's wonderful. Uh, new Orleans Social Club. And I, I got Larry Golding's new record, which is cool. I, I it's not it's not. I don't like it as much as the others. Um, uh, Sergio Mendez new record is nice. That's I still very have got nice. Stuff out here like um, Magical Mystery Tour, The Beatles. Uh, Herbie Hancock, Flood, Donald Fagan, Morph the Cat.
1: Oh yeah. Um, Have you had a chance to see Donald in concert?
2: No, I missed it.
1: Really? That was uh, me and Rick. We saw that in
0: Chicago just recently. How was it? It was, It's phenomenal. Oh, it, was, it was incredible.
2: I think just, you had my friend Freddie Washington playing bass.
0: Well, David Garfield, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast.
2: Hey, thank you.
0: For more information about David, check out his website at Creechy.com, that's C-R-E-A-T-C-H-Y.com, or uh, DavidGarfield.com. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening, and stay subscribed to Inside Music Cast. See you next time. Special thanks to David Garfield for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Our goal is to bring you a new podcast once every other week. So be sure to check your podcast downloads for the next episode of Inside Music Cast. If you have a question or a suggestion for the show, please drop us an email at input at insidemusiccast.com. That's input at insidemusiccast.com with one C. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Stay subscribed to Inside Music Cast, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for downloading Inside Music Cast, the podcast devoted to the musicians, fans, and the people who make the music business happen. Your subscription is appreciated, so be sure to check your podcatcher for our next episode. You can also visit InsideMusicCast.com for additional content. If you'd like to contact us via email, the address is input at InsideMusicCast.com.